You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah 58, verses 1 to 12. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it not? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to lose the bounds of wickedness? to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. This is the word of the Lord. Thing. The Lord bless you, church. Praise the Lord. Now, if you're new to Agape Baptist Church, we want to give you a special Agape welcome. You should have received a visitor's card, and on it you will see a QR code. Uh, you can see it on the screen as well. If you could just scan this QR code, we would love to bless you with a free book and connect with you further as well. So scan the QR code, and we'll get in touch with you. Now today I'm starting a new two-part sermon series entitled True Justice Flourishing Relationships. And if you are discerning, you would have noticed that the last sermon series by Pastor was on faith and work. And this one is actually on what is called, we've traditionally called justice and mercy. 
Now, these are the different areas in which we are directing the church to go deeper and wider this particular season. Now, even as I'm dealing with this topic, justice and mercy, I want to focus on this series, the concept of justice. Because our problem is that so many people don't think about it rightly. And so I want to clarify in these two sermons what it means to do justice. Now, justice is not just about judgment, meeting out punishment to wrongdoers. That's what many people instinctively think about when they think about justice, not just the retributive justice. Now, there is that for sure. But biblically, it's more than that. There's this other aspect of justice, which we call restorative justice, restoring people who are victims of injustice, which is super prominent across the Bible, and many people don't realize it. I've spent quite a, time, uh, quite a bit of time researching this topic. I'm very appreciative of various scholars I've consulted, especially Tim Keller, with some really incredibly good insights on this particular subject. And I will be using and adapting some of his ideas for today's sermon as well. Now, before I plunge into Isaiah 58, I want to say that over these next two weeks, I want to give every one of us here a challenge. Now, we all need challenges in our faith to grow spiritually, challenges that make us sufficiently uncomfortable so that growth happens. So the challenge is this. I challenge you to obey what God is calling you specifically in terms of doing justice in a restorative way. All right, what God is challenging you. He may have actually already planted thoughts in some of you, and if so, then this sermon series will simply confirm what God is already doing in your spirit, and this will embolden you further to do justice. And if you have not thought about it much before, then this sermon series will kickstart a journey for you in doing justice. Right, so now, how do we get there? We begin with Isaiah 58. Now, in this passage, we hear God speaking to His people through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is called to confront them. And God has a very strong message for His people. Essentially, He's rebuking them. He's telling them that there is something that they have badly neglected. And He is calling it out so that they would change their ways. Now, what is it that they're neglecting? They are neglecting true justice. Now, here's how I'm going to unpack today's message. Uh, God's call to His people for true justice. Three things. Number one, a new underpinning for justice, which I deem it as surprisingly relational. Number two, a new understanding of justice, surprisingly radical. And thirdly, a new undertaking towards justice, surprisingly reassuring. So you have got a new underpinning, a new understanding, and a new undertaking, all surprising in different ways. So firstly, a new underpinning for justice, surprisingly relational. Now, what do I mean by this? The text today tells us what is at the heart of justice. And what is surprising is that we would discover that justice is meant to be profoundly relational. Again, how do I get that? Now, when you think about people who are unjust in this world, right, I'm not sure which category of people you have in mind. 
But I am pretty sure for most of us, we are not thinking of the kind of people described in Isaiah 58. Now look at the kind of people they are. Look at verse 2, the underlying portions. Very surprising description. Let me just read out the underlying portions for you. These are people who seek God daily, right? They delight to know His ways. They ask of Him righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Now, from the description, we can see very clearly, these are really religious people, checking all the boxes, reading their scripture daily, praying daily, coming for corporate worship. The passage later tells us that these are people who fasted, and they would have done that on the annual day of atonement, the Yom Kippur, mentioned in Leviticus 16. Externally, they looked all religious, moral people as well in many ways. Many Christians would be almost proud to be described by God this way. Yet, there is a problem. On the surface, they look all right, but God says, no, it's pretentious. If you see the middle portion, it says, it looks as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of God, as if. It's not real. You know, in many of the Old Testament books, including Isaiah, you're going to see this word pair, and you're going to notice it. Justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. And they are interconnected to express the Hebrew concept of social justice. So the term just, righteousness in this, in this verse here is tied to justice. Essentially, God is saying to them, you are unjust, all of you. Now, earlier in verse 1, God says to Isaiah, tell my people their transgressions. Tell them the sins. In other words, God is saying to His people, you all have a covenant with me and you have broken the covenant by not abiding by the stipulations. You have transgressed. You have sinned in your injustice. You know, this season for a chapter a day, we are studying on prophetic books uh, like Isaiah. And you might find some parts hard to understand. But here's a big idea that is so helpful whenever you read the prophets, including Isaiah. Uh, Peter Gentry, a Bible scholar, notes this in his book, How to Read and Understanding the Biblical Prophets. And he says this right at the onset of the book. He says, everything in the prophets is based upon the covenant made between God and Israel during the exodus from Egypt, especially the expression or form of the covenant as it is found in the book of Deuteronomy. So that means if you know the book of Deuteronomy well, you would understand quite a bit of what the prophets are doing. Whenever the prophets are sent to God's own people, they are essentially saying to them many times, hey, you've got an agreement. A covenant with God is in Deuteronomy in that book. You agree to it, but you are not keeping to it. And again, that's what Isaiah is doing here. And the people here in Isaiah 58, they are so self-righteous. They are like, <laughs> how are we not obedient to this covenant? In verse 3, this is how they reply. They point out what they think is so good about them. They say this, Why have we, have we fasted? And you see not? Can you see? We fast, right? Why have we humbled ourselves? And you take no knowledge of it. We fast, we are humble people. Can you see that, God? And God basically re responds in the remaining verses, 4 to 5. He says, no, no, no. Here's your blind spot. Because when you fast, 
you are still seeking your own pleasure. You are oppressing your workers. Now, you may not be working on the Sabbath, you're abiding by the Sabbath, but you are oppressing your workers still. You're getting them to work. You're giving them crazy deadlines. You're giving them unjust wages. That is not other-centered humility. And even when you fast, you are fasting to get things for yourself. It is self-centered. You're praying to win the quarrel. You're praying that you can defeat that person even for wicked purposes. And yes, you are doing all these external acts of worship. You're bowing down your heads. You're wearing sackcloth and ashes that symbolize repentance, that symbolize mourning. But who is it for? Who is it for? God cuts through their hypocrisy and pretense. In another passage, Zechariah 7, God says this, When you fasted, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? You know, it's like a husband and wife in a confrontation. And then one of the spouse says, can't you see everything I did? I took care of this. I did all that work. I saved up all this money. I brought you to that vacation. Can't you see everything I've done? I'm so faithful. I'm so faithful to this covenant with you. And then the partner replies, when you, when you did all of that, did you really do that for me? Or was it more for yourself? Did you really do that for me? Pin drop silence. It's called brutal truth for a reason. Sometimes the truth hurts. By invoking His covenant, God is telling His people through Isaiah, you are relating to me wrongly. You think you know me, but you don't really know me. You think you love me, but you don't really love me. Because if you really love me, if you really know me, you have a loving relationship with me, you will do justice. You will care for the poor and the needy. Why? Because the Lord identifies with the poor and needy. Proverbs 14, 31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus echoes this exact thought. He says in Matthew 25, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, that at the final judgment, God would say to those who are his sheep, the righteous one, and he says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous answers him like, when? When did we do that? And God says, whatever you did, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Wow. God doesn't identify with the cream of the crop, not with the high and the mighty, but with those, the people at the bottom of the heap. You know, when we talk about rich and poor people, in the New Testament letters, many people instinctively would think about the book of James. Because James writes about it so strongly. You probably don't realize how strong. I was taking this class this past week with Thomas Schreiner, New Testament professor, and he says, if you read James, you would see that he's almost equating the poor with being Christian. 
and it describes the rich as being oppressively wealthy. Now, no, Jesus, James doesn't mean that if you have a lot of money, you cannot be a Christian. It doesn't mean that if you are bankrupt, then you will be saved. But James clearly understands who God identifies with. James chapter 2. God has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith. Now, do you realize how shocking this is? Because in, in the ancient world, the other gods are associated with the powerful, the rich, and the strong, with whoever the elites of that society are. And here, you have a god who says the exact opposite. Can you imagine your friend coming to you and saying, hey, you know what, I hear you're a Christian, you go to church on Sundays. Can you describe your god to me? And you say, my god identifies with the poor and needy. Whenever the poor is oppressed, he feels insulted, like someone spat on his face. And whenever someone helps the needy, he feels so honored. It's like a standing ovation to him. Your friend will probably be stunned, like, wow, your God is quite something. You see, if you and I were to create a fictional God out of our own imagination, we would never, ever have thought of describing God this way. The only reason the Bible describes God Almighty like this is because it is true. This is really who our God is. He identifies with the poor and needy. Now, here's my point. God wants His people to do justice. And caring for the poor and needy is a justice issue in the eyes of God. But what God wants for us is to begin by first focusing on our covenantal relationship with Him. Because it is our relationship with God that forms the basis of our relationship with others. Justice is not just about doing what's right and rejecting what's wrong, doing what's good and rejecting what's bad. Justice begins with doing God rightly. The foundation of biblical justice is a relationship with God, a God who calls out to us, Come, my covenant people, you who say you delight in my ways, you who say you delight to draw near to me, come and know the real me and come follow me to do justice. That's the underpinning for justice. You cannot get it anywhere else in the world, not in any other social theory or philosophy apart from the Holy Bible. If you have another underpinning for your concept of justice, today is the day to replace it with this one, your relationship with God, because this is the one that will lead you to true justice. Second point, a new understanding of justice, surprisingly radical. Now here in today's text, God tells His people who are fasting the kind of fast He wants. Now, it's not that God disapproves of His people literally fasting. No. It's just that He doesn't want empty rituals. He says effectively in verse 6 that if you want to fast, okay, but you mustn't continue with your evil. Stop your wickedness. Stop your oppression. You know, the oppressive Pharisees in the New Testament, they had the same problem. They were fasting and tithing and all of that. But Jesus says in Matthew 23, He says, yes, you ought to do all those things, but... You have neglected 
the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. So yes, justice includes avoiding all those evil towards others. But it's more than that. Now, Tim Keller, in his biblical analysis of this topic, pointed out three things that are really important in our understanding of justice. I find him excellent. Let me share his insights with you, and I'm adapting this for our context. Justice, first thing, is about equal treatment. Justice is about equal treatment. Leviticus 24, 22. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Now, reading this, you may not find this surprising anymore, but this is actually very radical in the ancient world. The ancient world was very tribalistic, and God is saying to His people, if you see people from another race, another nationality, another culture, any other social category, treat them the same, according to the same standards, the same respect, because everyone has equal dignity and worth. Now, this would have been a totally foreign idea to the Greeks or to the Romans. Aristotle once said, some races and nationalities deserve to be slaves. That's what Aristotle said, the philosopher. But the Bible teaches us otherwise. We are all created in the image of God. In today's passage, we see that as well. Isaiah 58, 7. It said here, Is it not, he's telling how to do justice, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? and not to hide from your own flesh. Now, let me zoom in on something. In context, the term homeless poor actually refers to the foreigner. They don't have a home. They don't have the means to get one. They're the immigrants, the refugees among you. And God basically tells the Jews, see these refugees as your own flesh. See them as your own kind. Take care of them. Don't reject them because they are different from you. Do justice to them. Because the Bible teaches us that whatever language, culture, or race we are in, we are all image bearers of this one creator God. You know, early in this COVID season, when COVID was spreading quite rampantly in the migrant worker dormitories, many in Singapore started asking and reflecting, have we been treating the migrant workers justly in our land? So many people were reflecting about this. And then there were some other Singaporeans that just look away, look at the migrant workers and inevitably still distance themselves away from them because in their hearts, they just see them as people of a different language, class, language group, nationality, ethnicity, social class. Now, what's the biblical response to that? Isaiah 58. Don't hide yourself from the migrant workers. Don't hide yourself from your own flesh and blood. God reminds us through His Word that we are, in this sense, one flesh with the migrant workers because we all come from God Himself. God is our Creator. Even if we have the power to create a metaverse, you and I can never be the ultimate Creator. We are all creatures, embodied beings with souls in this universe created by our great God. And this truth helps us to be impartial in our treatment of other people. They're treating them as fully deserving of love and respect, no matter how different they are from us. To neglect that is to be unjust. So number one is equal treatment. 
Number two, justice is about special concern for the vulnerable. Special concern for the vulnerable. And that's what I mentioned at the start of the sermon as well. And it's today's text too. We hear about God's concern for the oppressed, the hungry, the homeless, poor, the afflicted. In the rest of the Bible, we also hear God's special concern for the widows, for the orphans. Psalm 68, 5. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. James chapter 1, verse 27, Pastor Tation alluded to that in his prayer. James emphasizes the same thing. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So justice is not just about equal treatment. God wants us to go beyond in showing special concern for, special, for certain vulnerable groups. Now, how do we do that? Look at this in Proverbs 31, 8-9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So God is saying, speak up. Speak for those who cannot do that for themselves. It is a command. God didn't say, open your mouth for the strong or defend the rights of the wealthy. Right? It's not a command that way. You heard earlier today that this is often Sunday. Now ask yourself this question, what kind of an issue is often Sunday? Some may say the issue is love. It's about compassion, it's about grace, all true. But in the eyes of God, caring for orphans is also a justice issue. It's a justice issue. What we do with orphans and various other vulnerable groups in society is a justice issue. He wants us, His people, to be advocates for those who need it. Speak up for the widow, for the orphan, for the afflicted. Do justice to them. If you are a widow, you're an orphan, you're poor, you're needy, you hear Dorset watching, or you're watching a live stream, I invite you to look at this God. This is a God who cares for you. This is God's idea of justice. Not just equal treatment, He has a special eye for the vulnerable. And the moment you slide into that group, He looks at you in a special way too. He calls us to give our special care and attention to them. Third thing, generosity. Justice is about generosity. Now we see that in the text today. We heard just now in verse 7, to do justice is to share your bread with the hungry. Verse 10 adds on, pour yourself out for the hungry. Satisfy the desires of the afflicted. Do you know what's pouring yourself out? It's not just giving money. It's a radical giving of yourself to help. It goes beyond money. It includes your time, your involvement. You know, most people on this planet categorize generosity as acts of mercy, a good to do. But biblically, it's actually more than that. Generous, generosity is actually not just a matter of mercy, it is a matter of justice. And that means to not be generous is actually unjust. Now think about God's radical justice in the Old Testament. 
As you would expect, God's justice forbids theft of money and goods because He wants us to respect property rights. And so there is judgment for theft. That's justice. But He goes beyond that. He institutes various things that are part of His plans for justice. Right? For one, in the Old Testament, He has this Sabbath year law which states that every seventh year, all debts are cancelled. Many of you might be happy if your credit card company tells you that. Your debts are all cancelled on the seventh year. Then we have got this year law of the Jubilee year. Leviticus 25 tells us every 50 years, the land will go back to its original allotments. Practically speaking, that means no matter how badly in debt you are, you or your family will likely have one shot at starting all over again. That's Jubilee. The year of the Lord's favor. And then many of you would remember the gleaning laws from the book of Ruth. Landowners would leave some of the produce in the fields so foreigners and the poor can come and help themselves. This is God's idea of justice. A just society where rights are respected, but it is made up of incredibly generous people. Now in the New Testament, we hear the same emphasis. Luke chapter 14 Jesus tells us, teaches us whom we should invite for a banquet. And then he says, don't invite your friends or your brothers, relatives or rich neighbors. Like, oh dear, we've all invited people like that before. Right, don't worry, right? Jesus is just going hyperbolic here. You can't do that. You can't invite your friend to your homes for a meal. But he's trying to make a point. And here's the point. He says, don't invite them because they'll invite you and then they'll repay you. Like, okay then, who should we invite? And Jesus says, listen, literally, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Be generous to them. And Jesus says, if you do that, you will be repaid. When? He says, at the resurrection of the just. I just read it this past week, a chapter a day, in the morning. Resurrection of the just. What do you call the resurrection of the just? Because these people who are resurrected are those who do justice. They are the ones who are just. That's what God expects of us, His people. To be just is to pour yourself out for the hungry, to satisfy the desires of the afflicted. Do you see how radical this is? Do you think of yourself as a just person? The Jews in Isaiah 58 took pride in themselves. They would say, of course, <laughs> in what ways are we unjust? Until they are confronted afresh with a new understanding of God's justice. It's not just the evil they did. It's also the good they didn't do. Equal treatment, special concern for the vulnerable, generosity. God's justice is surprisingly radical. And now lastly, a new undertaking towards justice. Surprisingly reassuring. 
Now you're supposed to feel listening to a sermon like this. I tell you one possible feeling. If you are among those who are seriously taking this to heart, you're probably going to feel stress or guilty. There are widows, there are orphans, there are poor people, there are people with special needs, there are the elderly, there are migrant workers, all kinds of vulnerable people in our society. And then you might be thinking like, I'm supposed to help everyone? If not, I'm unjust? But no, you can't help every single person on this planet or every category of needy people on this planet. You're not expected to. God has given us spheres of influence and we're called to do our part in ways that we can. God stirs our hearts in different ways. We are not called to restore an unjust world to fullness of justice. That's not going to happen in our lifetimes. That final restoration will happen eventually when Christ returns. It's not now. However, we're not called to do nothing. We are called to do something. God calls His people in Isaiah 58 to a new undertaking towards justice. And I would say it's surprisingly reassuring. How so? Basically, from verses 8 to 12, Isaiah tells them effectively God's message, which is this. If you obey me, if you turn away from your sins, you seek to do justice to the needy, then I will bless you. I will be with you. Before you, behind you, I will heal you. I will answer your cry when you pray. I will make you shine. I will guide you. I will satisfy you. I will restore what is ruined, what is broken. If you walk the path of obedience, then all these wonderful blessings will become reality for you. So you see a clear pattern, the if-then pattern that continues even into verses 13 and 14, which is not part of the scripture reading this morning. If all this, then all these blessings are for you. Obey and you'll be blessed. Blessings for just people. And in the context of Isaiah 58, this is not just for the Jews alone. This is a timeless exhortation for all of us who believe in God, who hold fast to God's covenant. Keep justice, do righteousness. Now, is this call to justice reassuring? On the surface, the answer is probably no. Because you'll be thinking, I don't know how obedient I can be. I feel like I'll fall short of this impossibly high standards for true justice. What if I'm not good enough? What if I don't reach out to the migrant worker near my block? I see him every day. What if I don't foster or adopt an orphan into my family? What if I don't help those who are hungry? What if I'm not caring for the widow? What if there's so many groups of people? Does that mean I won't be blessed? You know, someone might come to you very quickly and say, ah, no, 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 don't worry about Isaiah 58, you're fine. Don't be so hard on yourself. God will still bless you. And one proper response would be like, why? This is what the text says. Don't try to hide the truth from me. Tell me the truth. Am I damned for my injustice or not? Am I damned for my selfishness or not? I want to know the truth, right? Rather than settle for a lie that keeps me blissfully ignorant. 
You know, this is not the first time Isaiah told them the people are in deep trouble for their social injustice. In chapter 5, Isaiah talks to them in a very similar way that the prophet Nathan did to King David for his acts of injustice. You may remember this. 2 Samuel 12, Nathan came to King David. He told him a parable. You remember about what? About a rich man and a poor man. Rich and poor again. There you go. Guess who is the bad guy? The rich man. Right? The rich man is unjust. Did wrong to the poor man. David listened to it, got so convicted, super convicted, and he said, this man shall surely die. And then Nathan gave this punchline. You are the man. You are the man. You are the one. God made you king, but look at what you did. Adultery, murder, you are guilty of injustice. Isaiah and Isaiah 5. He wants to bring conviction to the Jews about their social injustice. By this time, they have heard Isaiah a number of times already about their injustice. Okay, this time around, Isaiah does something different. He uses a parable, Nathan style, to get their attention. So Isaiah tells a story about a vineyard. A farmer works on it, prepares the vineyard, expects good vintage, but he looks at it, Rotten grapes? And then he asked the listeners, okay, you guys be the judge. What should this farmer do in this story? And the rhetorical response given spells out what would have been in the minds of the listeners. The answer is obvious. Destroy this useless, worthless fruit orchard. And the listeners will be thinking, that's right, that's just correct. Destroy that vineyard. It's a pathetic vineyard. Isaiah got them. I imagine Isaiah is swallowing his sliver before he gives his punchline. He says to the Jews, You are the one. You are the one. You are this pathetic vineyard. Isaiah 5 verse 7, this is what he says. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, that's you, and the man of Judah is pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed, rotten fruits for righteousness. But behold, an outcry, wild grapes. Woe to you, Isaiah says. You are so going to be judged for your injustice. This is super, super Bad news. And God wants us convicted in the same way. Don't look at someone else. You are the one. You are the one. I am the one. We have. We have to repent. But here's why this is surprisingly reassuring for us. Because despite all the bad news about who we are, there's this good news about Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9 gave a prophecy about Jesus whose name is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it. And this Davidic king won't do injustice like King David once did. He won't do injustice like the house of Israel, the man of Judah. He is the only one who takes that parable and flips it around 
You are the one. Yeah, not the unjust one. I am the truly just one. Listen to how Jesus fulfills this parable of the vineyard. He says this in John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine. I am the one. You're not the one. But you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, good fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is so reassuring because Jesus is saying, you are not the vine, we are not the vine. Jesus is the true vine. We are the branches. You saw all the if-thens in Isaiah 58. Jesus simplifies it essentially to one if-then relationship. If you abide in Christ and He in you, then you will bear much fruit. Good fruit. Because apart from Jesus, you cannot bear good fruit. But in Jesus, the perfect vine, even your imperfect fruit, your imperfect deeds of justice, your attempts at justice done in faith are pleasing, perfect in the eyes of God. And the blessings of God will come to you through Jesus Christ. It is super reassuring. Jesus, our King, reigns. So rest assured. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. You know, if the devil accuses us before God and says, look at this unjust people. Look at this unjust people. Look at how selfish they are. They deserve judgment, not blessings. Our Lord Jesus says, look at me. Look at my crown of thorns on the cross. You say my people in agape deserve retributive justice. I'll pay every single cent of their injustice they owe. It's all on me. I'll pay it all. They are forgiven. If the devil accuses us before God and says, look at these people, they don't do enough justice. Lazy, selfish, they're not actively making a difference. It's all their fault. Our Lord Jesus says, look at me. I am the one who reigns on the throne in this broken world. And I will restore all injustice one day. That hour has not yet come. But my people in agape will follow me in restorative justice. Equal treatment, special concern for the vulnerable, generosity. They will do that. They will do that. Not on their own strength or their own will. They just need to abide in me. Dear people, do you see how Lord Jesus Christ frees us up to pursue true justice and enjoy the blessings of obedience through Him? If any one of you here today listening to me over, over the live stream, you don't know this God, I invite you to give your life to this God of justice. There's no way any one of us on this planet can escape God's hand of justice. Only in Christ is there hope for you. Come as a refugee to Christ your refuge. Not just for the forgiveness of your sins, but also the promise of ultimate deliverance for the injustice that you have suffered in your lifetime. Our God sees. Our God sees. I believe God is speaking to us today. As God's people, may we discern and obey His voice. What 
undertaking towards justice is it prompting and leading you towards today? What do you sense a burden for? Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Respond to Him in faith. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg